1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkoff, coming to you from New York City. Coming to you from London, England, we have Corey Shockey. Hi, Corey.
0: <laughs> Hello, David.
1: There, there is Corey, led by her laugh, into the conversation. And we have in uh, Washington, D.C., we have Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. Hello again, Evelyn. There, Hello. There you go. And, <laughs> Sorry, mute no, button. That's okay. And David Sanger, where are you? I am in the great state of Vermont. Oh, in beautiful Vermont, um, and He's looking uh, well, out let's...
2: over the green mountains and the peace that they bring
1: upon us. That's a beautiful thing, and you're close to Greenland, our next state, the fifty-first state.
2: I, we are actually <laughs> we we here in Vermont are in favor of of the purchase of Greenland because. You may have noticed that Vermont is landlocked, or is until we take over New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, and, and so, if we could suddenly, can of you make see Greenland,
0: Greenland from your house, David? We can.
2: We cannot, but we can arrange for that once we own it, because it can be towed anywhere we want it, right? <laughs>
1: well, the rate Greenland is going, it may flow where you don't want it. Um, <laughs> So, uh not 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 happy circumstance we did discuss Greenland on the first episode of Deep State radio this week with uh, Corey and with uh, Ed Luce. Um this episode I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit to a subject of uh, everybody's mutual interest here uh, and that is the recent goings-on in Russia with regard to confusion you know about, mysterious explosions. There were actually two sets of explosions, one in a military depot, one in a missile testing facility where there may have been radiation leaked. And interestingly, the Russian uh, monitoring systems, which would have told us that the radiation was leaking, all seemed to go offline a couple days after this happened. Uh, But of course, the world systems for monitoring this are pretty sophisticated, uh, and that's how we know Uh, the the Russian ratings were anomalous. And David Sanger, you've been writing and reporting on this. This is just your kind of thing. Maybe you could bring us up to date and then we can have a little bit of a conversation about what it all means.
2: Sure. So I'll tell you what we know. But when we get to what it all means, we'll get back to Greenland because the strategic importance of Greenland is being up near the Arctic. And that's what a lot of these weapons that we believe the Russians are building are all about. So here's what we know. We know that um, a week ago Thursday, um, uh, there was an explosion and a radioactive um, cloud that briefly uh, emerged across the White Sea, which is in the part of northern Russia, I needn't say this to deep state radio listeners, sort of closest or, uh, to Finland. Uh, and uh, the Russians, of course, immediately went to great lengths to first say uh, nothing going on here, keep moving. Nothing going on at all. Then said that two scientists or engineers may have been, were missing after a liquid fuel rocket accident, but they ran into a few problems. The first was that the city that is closest to where this happened, which was on an offshore rig in the White Sea, um, saw a brief but significant spike in radiation that afternoon and actually posted the numbers um, on the city's website until somebody got to them and suggested that maybe that was not like a brightest idea they ever had. Uh, then we know that a number of scientists were taken to a hospital and the doctors report that they were received absolutely no warning that the people who were coming in were suffering from some kind of radioactivity uh, issue. In fact, everybody that came in was dead by the time they they got in there, perhaps killed by the explosion rather than by the radiation. Um, And then people started piecing together what happened. And as best we can tell, and this is not 100%, but I would say with sort of 80% certainty, um, there was an explosion as part of a test of what NATO calls the new Skyfall missile. And this is a missile that would have a nuclear weapon screwed onto the nose cone. There was no nuclear weapon on the nose cone at the time of the test, but a nuclear reactor in the back. And the nuclear reactor, which as advertised by Vladimir Putin when he first announced this weapon in the State of the Union address that he gives in 2018, um, was supposed to enable the, the, the missile to have unlimited range. Basically, this uh, was
1: this yeah. was the one where he showed a video of the missile landing on Mar-a-Lago. I think yeah, so right. <laughs> yes. uh, there,
2: there were some missiles. Uh, shown Actually, through, I think
3: that was a different one.
2: <laughs> but that was a, that was a different that was a different video. He okay. showed several things. He showed an undersea sub uh, submarine that is um, autonomous. Uh, that's Nick. That's called Poseidon. Uh, that's supposed to be sort of a second strike vehicle that could Uh, autonomously hit the west coast of the u.s uh from uh from uh russia's west uh then or from russia's east i should say um and then he showed this uh this skyfall missile which yes david is the same name as a james bond movie just so that we're, we're we're sure that everybody's sort of lined up the same here um and uh This is a technology the United States tried in the 50s and 60s in something called Project Pluto and gave up not only because they couldn't really make the thing work, but because when you shot it off, it uh, left a trail of radioactivity out of its exhaust. Um, So uh, it it was not the most environmentally friendly uh, weapon that we ever developed. And even the U.S. killed it in 1964. Uh, But the Russians seemed to be at it. They have not admitted at this point that they were testing the missile. They have admitted that there was a radiological incident involving a liquid fuel um, uh, missile. Now, that leaves open the question how a liquid fuel missile would create a radiological incident if you didn't have a nuclear reactor out the back. Uh,
1: So that's a great summary of where we are with all of this. Evelyn, these are the kinds of issues you've been following Uh, throughout your career. What does it tell us about the Russian mindset at the moment? It's crazy. (laughs) I mean, it's fevered.
3: Um, You know, the Russians have been out of their minds ever since we left the ABM Treaty in in the early 2000s under George Bush, which is to say that we walked away from mutual assured destruction, saying, you have nuclear missiles, we have nuclear missiles, we can strike at one another at any time, and cancel each other out once the u.s had missile defense russia was incredibly paranoid that this would cancel them out and that this was directed at russia for a decade and more you know we the u.s, US government said to the russians missile defense is not aimed at you we want to prevent those crazy rogues in north korea and iran from launching weapons at us and our allies and the and, and missile defense won't work against russia because you have too many weapons And so calm down. The Russians didn't calm down and they've kept on going. They're also quite alarmed by, you know, just our regular conventional capability and precision guided munitions, et cetera. And so they, uh, under Putin, uh, have become, you know, bigger risk takers. Now the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, we know that they violated that and, you know, deployed those weapons. It's partly. So so did at- so did
1: we apparently this weekend. I saw that we were testing.
3: A- we're testing, inter- but we but deploying is a whole nother ball of wax. And of course, you know the Russians are the cause of our need to go to, or our, our perceived need to go down that road. But anyway, I'm I'm going on a little too far afield here. The point is that Vladimir Putin, in his in his desire to deter and to show that Russia's strong, so part of this is a genuine. Fear that the United States now has upset the nuclear and and really the overall strategic balance, you know, between the U.S. and Russia. So they've been trying to get back some initiative, and that's partly understandable, leaving aside the INF issue, but. He's gone too far with, this, with a couple of these new weapons that he's developing, and in particular this one, because it's, it's basically like a doomsday weapon. Uh, you know, as, as David described, you know, it's nuclear-fueled nuclear missile. Um, it would be going faster and in a more erratic um, way, so that it would be harder for the U.S. to track and to stop. And I don't really know exactly how the Russians would ever stop it. So it's, it's highly irresponsible. And it's the kind of thing, I called it doomsday, because it's the kind of thing you would only use if you thought the U.S. had launched nuclear weapons against you. Um, so, uh, And we, in fact, back in, I think, the 50s and 60s, toyed with such a weapon and realized that it was dangerous and stupid and, you know, abandoned those efforts. So now the Russians are doing this. And what, and I guess the crazy part of this is the backdrop of course, is that Vladimir Putin domestically is the weakest that he's been certainly since, since 2014, since the Crimea invasion, which was the peak of his popularity, but he may be even less popular than he was in 2011, 2012, when there were demonstrations against, him in, in Moscow, and which were largely limited to kind of a liberal constituency, and were based on concern about parliamentary elections. So they weren't even so much about him. Um, in this case, they are about his party and the and and verging more and more on a protest against Vladimir Putin himself. So, so you know this kind of flexing his muscle is something that you would expect him to do at this moment in time. And then I'll leave the cover up and all that for later.
1: Okay, well, we'll come back to that in a second. But, you know, Corey, uh, needless to say, when this kind of thing happens, typically the American president, the White House, the administration hop to it. They make a statement. If governments are doing reckless things, they talk about the recklessness. They're doing things that are designed primarily to threaten the United States. They make a very clear message about that. And of course, what our president did was he tweeted about Anthony Scaramucci and wanting to buy Greenland. Um, And I'm just wondering, what what do you think the appropriate response of the U.S. government or the West (laughs) ought to be to this kind of behavior?
0: So I love it when you cast me as as the sensible um, national spokesman on these issues, David. Thank you for gifting me with that role.
1: Corey, on a regular but basis, as... I've got people tweeting at me saying, Corey should be the president of the United <laughs> States. I support Corey. I, I, David Sanger works for the New York Times and can't take a stand. I'm sure you support Corey too, right?
0: <laughs> Remember that great moment in um, in... <laughs> The presidential campaign of the 1950s when a woman shouts out, the sensible people are for you, and the candidate has to reply, but I need a majority. (laughs) (laughs) That's my presidential campaign, And, Corey, considering
2: considering that you're now at least a a British resident, though not a citizen, (laughs) I would argue that before you become president, you you could actually, like, you know, you have a government in chaos at your doorstep <laughs> that you could sort out first, just on the experience <laughs> level, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to go the other direction, David, and shame me for the fact that I am overseas and not rolling my sleeves up to do my utmost to ensure that a president that is doing damage to our country doesn't get reelected because I do yeah. feel the I, I do feel that tug at me. Um, to David to David Rothkopf's very good question though, about what should we be saying about the Russian missile test? First and foremost, we should be saying that this is yet another Russian violation, of the obligations they entered into in the INF Treaty, which the United States tried for years to uh, persuade the Russians to stop violating the treaty so that it could continue in force. So, first of all, point out that the Russians had been in violation of the INF Treaty. We couldn't figure out how to bring them back into compliance, and that's why we withdrew from the treaty. So, set responsibility for the current scary destabilizing moment where it properly belongs, which is on Russian shoulders. Second, uh, explain that we and our NATO allies had considered Russia's building of these weapons, weapons like the ones that they tested, to be a material violation of the INF Treaty. So the second message is the US isn't alone in this. All of our NATO allies, who are the countries that are going to be most affected by the end of the NINF treaty, agree with us that the Russians are in material breach of their obligations. Third, talk about other destabilizing things the Russians have been doing in Europe um, and even beyond, right? The Russian and Chinese, uh, the Wall Street Journal article from today about Russians and Chinese violating South Korean airspace presumably to test reaction times of South Korean and American militaries, that we are not the ones making this time so fraught and destabilizing, and then explain what we are doing to try and return it. We need to publicize these events. We need to try and bring the Russians back into compliance. We need to try and deter them by developing missiles that could re-establish deterrence in a way that our own restraint has not reestablished that deterrence. Um, and offer to commence negotiations, maybe even put a proposal out there that says, we would like to talk about the START deal, New START, and whether it makes sense to sustain it, what kinds of arms control measures The Russians might be interested in because, wow, given how unstable Europe is because of Russia's behavior, we would really like to see a reduction of the short range nuclear forces that are stationed in Europe. The NATO allies have 200. The Russians have more than 100 times that. Let's bring those weapons down to an equivalent and very low level. So make a positive proposal about uh, ways that we and the Russians want to cooperate, because as David said when we were talking about Hong Kong in the prior podcast, that you know having actual policies that persuade people that you're doing the right thing and that they should support your policy, you know that's elementary politics. That's not even advanced politics.
1: No, David, can I make fan. this uh,
2: can I make this more complicated? Uh, well, you can, but cool? I
1: was hoping that you were going to support me in the Corey Corey, and you know, I, I absolutely <laughs> am. I, there's, there's there's there's
2: no in fact, I'm sitting here right now. Printing
1: T-shirts while we're talking,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and also, by the way, we're gonna have a Corey bobblehead doll, and you're gonna press it. It's gonna oh, do excellent! The, it's gonna do the Cory <laughs> laugh. We just have to. We, we just have to. We have to get Ian, our great engineer, to just give us a pure laugh soundtrack to put on. No,
1: Chris, Chris, Chris Cottonware has a whole group of unemployed elves from the North Pole that we hire for this kind of thing. So, oh, okay.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, but, but before we it, hand out bobbleheads, yes. Um,
2: yes. Trump, President Trump has actually put out, I would not call it a proposal, I would call it a half-baked idea uh, about how one would extend New START INF and all that. He says, basically, he wants a treaty that deals with all nuclear weapons and also involves the Chinese and everyone else who has nuclear weapons. Now, the Chinese being the key part about INF, because while the precipitating reason that the U.S. pulled out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement was the Russian violations, and they were in violation, the strategy behind it, if uh, if you believe the administration, was that they want to be able to counter what China has deployed. And most of China's um, or much of China's uh, nuclear fleet uh, is within the, the ranges of the INF Treaty. But China was never a signatory because nobody could ever imagine that China would actually uh, become a significant nuclear power when uh, that was capable of deploying large numbers and varieties of weapons when INF was negotiated and then put into effect, uh, Although China already did have nuclear weapons at that time. And um, the problem with this is that if you make a treaty too big, too complex, and have too many players, all of whom have very different um, arsenals and very different motives, you almost assure that nothing gets done. For example, China right now has fewer nuclear weapons than the U.S. and Russia have. So if we reached a treaty that embraced all of us, this is more evidence, uh territory, we might actually be allowing or encouraging the Chinese to increase the size of their arsenal to match ours
1: and the Russians. Did we just lose you there or were you just finishing there?
2: I was finished there.
1: Oh, OK. Um, I've, I've, I'm unfamiliar with you going on so briefly. Um <laughs> but no <laughs> it's because I want to allow more time for Corey's campaign speech. I I don't blame you. I, I I I I don't blame you. Um Evelyn you know it's not impossible that you have a new administration in January of 2020. That has to deal with this stuff, because it's very unlikely that the Trump administration is going to do much between now and then, um, given the election year and their distraction with other things and the fact that so many of them are so incompetent. And so the question becomes, what is a Democratic administration do to send a message to Russia um, about this? Is it is it very similar to what what Corey just outlined there? Is there something you'd add or subtract?
3: Uh, To be honest, and my Democratic colleagues don't like it when I say this, I mean, we were headed towards this playbook already with the Russians because we had tried to talk them out of violating the INF Treaty for years, and it didn't work. And so the only thing left was to take action to prompt them to change their actions. So I think a Democratic administration would likely pursue the same avenue. Um, There may be a good argument for not deploying anything, so developing a new intermediate missile maybe, um, but the Europeans certainly don't want us to deploy any nuclear missiles on their territory, and we might be able to do that under a democratic administration if we need to. We won't be able to do it under this administration, that's for sure. Um, so it's something we could certainly threaten to the Russians, which would make them wake up and potentially come back into compliance. But the reality is, yes, we do now have this other Asian theater that we have to think about, and so it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have arms control for the European arena and arms control that's separate, <laughs> um, but it also means that we do need to pay attention to what's going on in Asia, writ large—not actually just with regard to China, but also with regard to India, Pakistan, all of those countries that are building their nuclear arsenals every day. Albeit, of course, they're they're far at this moment from being uh, from approaching the same size as the U.S. and
1: the Russian forces. Well, that does seem to pose a problem, doesn't it, Corey? I mean, if you're the Chinese, and I, I remember when you know the months or a couple of months in the lead-up to pulling out of the INF Treaty, people are saying, well, this is because we need to get the Chinese into all of this. But if you're the Chinese, why do you want to get into all of this when you're so far behind in some of these areas? Don't you want to sort of keep it open-ended and catch up? Don't you see this as a potential um, uh, sort of uh, unevenness in the playing field that you want to redress?
0: It looks a little different to me than it sounds like it does to you, David. So the Chinese um, could have built an enormous nuclear arsenal and instead they have a relatively restrained one of a few hundred because a, a minimum deterrent is what they have determined best suits their security needs, right? So a survivable retaliatory Uh, capability. So they don't want to build nuclear INF missiles necessarily because they have the nuclear deterrent that they need. Um, And on the conventional missiles of the INF ranges, they're wildly, wildly out in front of American arsenals. In fact, the last several uh, us commanders of the Pacific Command have argued for withdrawing from the INF treaty so that we could uh, so that we could deploy conventional missiles in the INF ranges in the Pacific in order to better defend our allies and our interests there. So the Chinese don't have an interest in uh, in growing larger nuclear forces in these ranges, and they're so wildly dominant in conventional missiles that they may actually uh, be persuaded that it's in their interest to get an INF treaty that prevents the United States from deploying conventional missiles that would negate China's emergent advantages um, in, in any conflict in the first island chain or, or an attempted attack on Taiwan. But as you rightly suggest, it's going to be a very hard sell because it's just like the argument that the Chinese Communist government makes about climate change or um, uh, or about other issues, which is that they view themselves as a poor developing country and don't think the rules of a great power competition should apply to them. Even though they also want to be considered a great power and the stampeding new hegemon on the horizon.
1: Well, you know uh, it, it, I, that's a good, an interesting analysis. I, I do think that the the core point remains the same, which is it's going to be difficult to get the Chinese to sort of cleave to our strategic vision of the world. But David, at the very beginning, you were talking a little bit about. The purpose of all of this, and the Arctic, and as I said on the last episode, we were talking about what possible rationale could there be for this Greenland play? Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see the purpose of this, with regard to the Arctic, is.
2: Well, first of all, of all the crazy ideas that we've heard out of uh, various members of the administration on various things, I'm not sure the Greenland one's entirely crazy. If Greenland, if if uh, if Greenland was up for sale. It might make enormous sense. First of all, those of us who go fishing a lot, it would be terrific. Okay. But you're interested more in the strategic <laughs> purpose uh, for this. Um, uh, although I think it would be very cool if we if we did a deep state radio broadcast from Greenland. I think we all ought to pick up and
1: like go go do that. It would be fabulous. Um, and the purpose But well, this here, would be your specialty, isn't there a city in Greenland called Nuke? Uh, there's a city
2: in Greenland called Everything, you know. That you. Well, it's not, but I remember <laughs> the Arctic Council.
1: The Arctic Council had a meeting when Hillary. David, Clinton, how a secretary. do you
0: know that?
1: But uh, how? I mean, what? It, what? This is, you know, <laughs> this is what we do at Deep State Radio. But I remember Hillary Clinton going to Nuuk in Greenland for a meeting of the Arctic Council. I mean, who does it? <coughs>
0: I take your implicit criticism that I am standing in a glass house of obscure knowledge that I savor that nobody else wants to know, so I ought not to throw that rock at you, David.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I'm like sitting here talking about nuke, and you're the like, well, you know, this relates to the battle of Thermopylae in the following. Okay. Uh, I see, I'm, the back
2: argument. To, I'm back to my simple strategic argument that we need more fishing grounds. but anyway, um, so um, here's here's the concept. The Russians and the Chinese are both militarizing the Arctic considerably. And the more it melts thanks to um, uh, to, to climate change, um, the more the Russians and the Chinese and others, See trade routes that you know go through uh, the Arctic and maybe go uh, close to over the pole. Um, so uh, I'm sure that President Trump is driven 80 percent by the real estate opportunity of buying that much real estate uh, with that few people in that, that few people in it. Uh, but also because the U.S. has long had a base up in Greenland that we use as one of our main ways, uh, for patrolling, uh, the Arctic. And, uh, because a lot of the Russian testing that we have seen going on in recent times for these missiles and so forth suggests that they actually may base some of this stuff, uh, up there and that they're trying to, uh, gain a good deal of, of control. And the Arctic is sort of the, the secret last frontier where people are, um, Uh, maneuvering for uh, geopolitical advantage. So you can see why Trump may have gotten this idea. And I will point out that the last one who proposed uh, that the United States buy Greenland was Harry Truman. Now, he only wanted to offer up $100 million, and he was soundly rejected, as President Trump will be soundly rejected here. But uh, it's not the first time the issues come up. Um, I think what we're... um, what we just need to do to close the loop on the argument we were just having before about uh, what kind of treaty could be possible in the future. Um, What the Chinese are thinking about when they're building these short and medium range uh, missiles is all about Taiwan, Japan, and as Corey said, keeping the United States behind the second island chain. So having a strike capability that would make it a conventional strike capability that would make it too risky for us to put aircraft carriers or or other ships uh, in too close. When the Russians are thinking about this, they're thinking about defeating missile defense, as Evelyn suggested. And when the United States is thinking about this, they're thinking that we've been cut out of a whole class of weapons, to which the interesting question is, yes, but do we really need these anymore? And um, that's, that's sort of what's going on here. And of course, you could read the Putin tests that have gone awry, here as a case, either sit back and relax, because Putin will never make this nuclear reactor inside a missile work, or worry about it because Putin will come back and come up with another way of designing
1: missiles of this category that are covered by no treaties whatsoever. Evelyn, you're a Washington insider. You've worked in these big institutions. You go to these kind of you know, think tank meetings, cocktail parties—you hang out with these people. How many people there actually understand the Arctic? Like you're ha- not? No, I'm. Sorry. No, I'm. No, not me. I live in the in Greenwich Village, over Joe's Pizza. Um, but uh, how many? Just the the number the number of people who actually understand kind of the new geopolitics of the Arctic's pretty small crowd, isn't it?
3: Um, yes, that's correct. And I, I mean, it's it is interesting that the President chose Greenland because I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, he's trying to deflect attention from other serious issues like potential impending you know recession, et cetera. But uh, you know, speaking of missile defense, you know, this is Greenland is an area that is very critical to missile defense of North America. So, And interestingly, it's an argument for NATO because, of course, Denmark owns Greenland. So I don't I wonder I would have liked to be the fly on the wall when, you know, to to know when and how Greenland came up in conversation with the president. But I would imagine it would have been an opportunity to explain how allies can help protect America because of the sensors we have up there for the missile defense, for space surveillance, you know. Um, so that we can see things with our satellites, et cetera. So um, uh, so I, I forget what your original point was, but I was thinking, I, I wanted to make those points too, because uh, because they, they get to a little bit of the element of seriousness that David mentioned to the 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 value of Greenland. And but I also think it's a it's a, a, another reminder to the President to be mindful of of the value of alliances. And the Russians absolutely are quite focused on the Arctic. They're quite nervous about the Chinese. The Chinese have been trying for years now to get a seat on the Arctic Council. And the rules are that you have to be, you know, an an Arctic, you have to be a landmass located on the Arctic in order to be a member of the Arctic Council. I believe they made a compromise and they allowed them to be observers. And there are a couple other countries that are observers. But in any event, um, the the Arctic is going to be an issue because unfortunately we have not been able to arrest global, well, we're calling it just climate change. There's a new word for it: global crisis or climate crisis. We have not been able to arrest the climate crisis. And so we are going to be dealing with more, more traffic up there. And Russia has militarized their portion of the Arctic by building building up the military installations that they had there left over from the Cold War and putting in place systems like the S-400 air defense system, which is their most advanced air defense system. So there's a real military reality there as well. I forgot what your original question was. (laughs) Sorry. That
1: doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I I just, you know, my role here is to say a few words and then you guys can go off in any direction you want. Uh, you mean since we will anyway. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I, you know, I've seen enough of these kind of Washington talk shows to know how this kind of thing goes. But um, we we only have a few minutes left. But, Corey, just to broaden the, the focus a little bit, you know, for a while there, it seemed like we kind of had a playbook when it came to nuclear issues and We had doctrines. uh, uh, We had uh, an interest in multilateral treaties. We um, sought uh, to manage things in a certain way. And then, you know, one by one, we've been pulling back on some of those treaties and new players are entering the arena. Uh, And it was striking to me that, you know, in the course of the past week, You've had the Indian government saying they are rethinking their no first strike um, policy uh, or or rumors that the Indian government is rethinking their no first strike policy. And you had a a prominent American presidential candidate, one of just two or three people who may be the next president of the United States, Elizabeth Warren, saying we should have a no first strike policy. Uh, The first strike doesn't benefit us at all. Um, And so all of a sudden, it looks like that which was resolved seems to be being opened up again for a new kind of discussion. Is that a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing?
0: I'm so glad you posed the question that way, David, because as you were going through the litany, I was thinking, you know what? The defense of the American homeland, the American way of life, America's friends in the world ultimately relies on our willingness to threaten and use nuclear weapons. And we have had no public conversation about that for such a long time. And I think our strategy is that is in peril if we assume we have public consent for actions that in a moment of crisis, the public wouldn't support or allies wouldn't support, right, because we can't have a strategy for defending allies that they won't sign up to, because that too fails in crisis, and um, and having a public conversation about these things, I, I think the no first use um, discussion is actually an especially helpful one, because it's one that sounds simple and straightforward, right, like we shouldn't Threaten to use these weapons except if they were used on us sounds simple and straightforward but you negate deterrence if you take that argument so it actually makes the use of nuclear weapons more likely because it encourages countries that think they could win a conventional war against you to test that logic and the best explanation for why countries go to war has always been offered by the Australian historian Jeffrey Blaney, whose very simple logic is countries choose war when they think they're going to win it. And what nuclear weapons do is keep the strongest powers from believing that they could win a war against each other. And that freezes the political dynamic of conflict in ways that actually help sustain great power peace. And that's a better thing, a more important thing, than having a no first use policy. So yeah, I think it's a really important conversation for us to have. I love it that people are talking about it because if Jefferson believed that that, our way of life needs to be refreshed by the blood of patriots every once in a while, I mean, that's a reminder of how reckless Thomas Jefferson could be, but the logic of deterrence needs to be refreshed in people's mind every 10 or 20 years, given that our defense continues to rely on it.
2: And David, some, you know, this came up, some, this came, no, oh, go right ahead. Come on.
1: I was, I was just going to say someday I'd like to devote an entire episode to what an asshole Thomas Jefferson was, but... We, we we can come back to that at some point. <laughs> we, I'm in
0: for that broadcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, and if he's and if he's
2: willing to come on the deep state, I think that would be good. You know. Yeah. Uh, right. right. Um, the Trump administration came out in a very different place early on, uh, through Jim Mattis when he was still uh, defense secretary, on the no first use issue. Um, in fact, when he turned out. Um, he and the White House turned out the new national uh, security uh, strategy um, and then the new defense strategy. Uh, There was an argument in it uh, that the United States should make it clear to the world that if something brought down our critical infrastructure, say a cyber attack or something, we might actually use nuclear weapons in response to an overwhelming cyber attack. And it was for precisely the reason that Corey just described, because we were short of deterrence, as we've discussed many times on Deep State, in the cyber realm and needed to be able to create some. And so they came up with the idea of threatening to use nuclear weapons in response to a cyber attack. Do I think anybody in their right mind would ever do this? No. But it's pretty interesting that they felt the need to sort of make the statement. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, and, 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 and. It really is. Uh, so, you know, I, it, it seems, Evelyn, like we, we may be heading back to a discussion about some of these core issues. You know, David made the very smart strategic move to go from, you know, being, you know, focused on all the nuclear stuff that could kill us to being focused on all the cyber stuff, which seemed like the story of tomorrow. And now we're going back to all the nuclear stuff. Fortunately, he does both. But
2: uh, or just once again, proving Sanger's always wrong
1: well, that's, none of us believe that. But, I refuse
0: um, to sign up to that doctrine.
1: No, not, a, not at all. I'm glad they still have you there to remember this stuff. Most people, you know, weren't around for this. Um, uh, yeah, but, 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 it, but in any event, Evelyn, it does seem like you know some things that are old are new again um, in terms of the strategic discussion in Washington.
3: Well, I mean, yes, but I think it's it's it gets back to what Corey said. I mean, I think people just some people got lazy and they didn't want to think that somehow deterrence mattered anymore. But those of us who were entrusted with maintaining deterrence and and keeping an eye on sort of America's standing militarily and otherwise, our security situation, were quite aware and concerned about the need for deterrence at all different levels, conventional and nuclear. So um, I, I, I can't take even the previous administration, the one I worked for, the Obama administration, off the hook, because we failed at deterrence operationally in certain examples, which I won't mention here. <laughs> and, we, and I think we, we weren't focused sufficiently on the need to deter. So even when we crafted, for example, sanctions policy vis-a-vis Russia, we were very reactive rather than trying to prevent the Russians and saying, hey, let's, let's deter you by threatening economic sanctions. And again, the military deterrence is also always there in the backdrop, but all of these deterrent measures, whether they're economic or military, require, they have to be credible in order to actually be a deterrent. And so if the population and certainly if our government is not sufficiently cognizant of the need for deterrence and doesn't understand the dynamic, then it won't work. And then, of course, we'll be in danger. Then there's a, the greater risk that we that will be tested and we'll either lash out and people will die or we'll be found trying. And then, you know, our our way of life could be threatened. Well. <laughs> Sorry, that's a, I know it doesn't sound very upbeat.
1: Yeah, and. There you go, folks. Have but a nice summer. But in
0: Rosa's absence, <laughs> we're super grateful that the thorny crown of entropy was nonetheless worn in this podcast.
1: That, no, yeah. that's right. We can always count. We can always count on Evelyn there, and David's all relaxed about this because, of course, he's in Vermont, miles away from where anybody any any blast damage would occur. Uh, there are no I, targets. I long,
2: in- long assume... Yeah, I've long long uh, assumed that the uh, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans couldn't find Vermont on a map, until Rosa, who of course is not with us on this broadcast,
1: <laughs> found
2: for me some abandoned missile silos in northern Vermont. Uh, that's our girl. Yeah, uh, that's it. Which we're now madly trying to turn into ski condos. Yeah. Well, don't underestimate, <laughs> don't do
1: not underestimate. Don't see. undermine
3: our deterrence. <laughs>
1: No, but don't underestimate the <laughs> Canadian-Danish alliance that could come over that border at any minute. Well, uh, I'm waiting for
2: the. Right. I'm waiting for the counterattack from Greenland.
1: Perfect. Yeah, thing. remember <laughs> that the, the 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 first international battles of this country were fought in Canada, led by our great hero Benedict Arnold. Um,
2: <laughs> By the way,
1: I'm sure you did this on your in your earlier
2: episode, which I'm sorry I, I wasn't able to participate in. But people have noted that um, it costs Denmark, what, seven or eight hundred million dollars a year to keep Greenland you know, running and that all the people of Greenland have full national health insurance. I'm not really sure we want to sign up for both of those. Wow. Wow. What a Biden-esque
1: opinion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yet another class of people. People want to deny health care to. All right. Yeah. Look. <laughs> Um, Well, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that on on some future episode of Deep State Radio. Uh, Rosa will be back next week, she promises, having driven across the country from Wyoming, stopping at every dog park between Wyoming and Washington, D.C. And
0: And silo. And silo. Clearly
1: (laughs) want to hear about that. Yeah, if if you want to know more about the silos, the Times had a great article on it. I wrote an article in the Daily Beast, which appeared a couple of days ago, um, which began and ended with references to the New York Times article on luxury $4 million silos that you could buy that had their own dog parks inside of them, uh, literally. Wow.
2: And, and spas and built-in bars, which,
1: um, you know, yeah. bo- bo- <laughs> both of which attract... Which you need if
2: Armageddon's attention. coming. Yeah, yeah right. A well-stocked exactly. bar is always the best deterrent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly.
1: Um Although the idea of a dog park when you're buried underground for a long, long time, it's worrisome. But in any event, go read that article. Read David's articles. Um, read Corey and Evelyn's articles. Go see them all on television or giving speeches. Come back next week. If you want more of this, go to the DSrnetwork.com. Listen to the upcoming episodes of National Security Magazine with uh, Michelle Flournoy and, and Mike Morell. Listen to the ones last week from James Clapper and Jake Sullivan. We've got a lot going on for you at the DSR Network. Go there and while you're there, sign up and become a member. Uh, we appreciate it. We've had a boost, a kind of an August surge of people signing on to become members here at the DSR Network and we love it um, because uh, it enables us to go and grow and 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 launch new plans for the fall. So. Um, Please go. Please sign up. And thank you, David. Thank you, Evelyn. And thank you, Corey, for this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, We know where to find you.